Whether you're taking a rip down the lease road in your jacked-up truck or flying first class to Houston, Texas, it's time to sit back and relax for another exciting episode of Oil & Gas Onshore. This episode is brought to you by Tendeka, a global specialist in advanced completions and production solutions for the oil and gas industry. And now, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome your host, Justin Gauthier. Welcome to this week's episode. We're here at the Canon with Brian Blackwell, Director of Technologies at Astra Innovations. Is that how I pronounce it? Astra That's Innovations? It. That's correct. Wow, Perfect, man. <laughs> how you doing, man? Doing pretty darn good. Yeah? yeah. Happy Friday. Same to you. Yeah. Beautiful weather outside. No complaints. We had a pretty good onslaught of rain here over the last couple of weeks, and hopefully we're in the clear. But thanks for coming on the show. We've talked about doing this for quite a while now. I know it's been, we, I think six months ago is when we yeah. first thought about getting together and talking about stuff like this. So. Yeah, because we always have, and we were just talking about this, we always have great conversation. And, you know, we share a similar background just with respect to in, being in the drilling world. And you've moved on to bigger and hopefully better things, which is exciting. And so uh, I wanted to bring you on the show to talk a little bit about, you know, your background, what you've done and your experience working at a large corporation, you know, focusing on drilling, and then you got into a little bit of the BD side of it. And so you've had an interesting path. And then you've taken some pretty big risk and leap of faith by going into this tech startup world, which, I mean, people, you know, it's an area that a lot of people are trying to get into. A lot of money is being thrown at. But you've been kind of interested in that space for quite a while. And, and I know we, even when you were at Oxy, we talked a little bit about just data and, and how to organize it and how it, you know, how data can tell a good story. And, and so it's, it was a natural transition, I feel like, for you to for you to move on to where you're at now. But before we get going on that, have you ever been on a podcast before? This is my first one. Breaking the, the cherry. First. Yeah. Perfect. How about man. that? Yeah, no, that's exciting. Do you listen to podcasts? I do. I okay. listen to several of them you know, okay. through the like day. What? Just depends where I'm going on. I like to listen to them in all kinds of different realms. So some on astrophysicists, right? Some that yeah. are just based on just historical figures, like biographies of all of that. And so none of them are nearly on current events or things like that. I feel like those get too opinionated as far sure. as who's going on. But as far as things that are tech-related or just it is is or it isn't, yeah. it makes it a lot easier for me to, to take in the information without any bias. Yeah. So. No, that's what I say focus on. And that's the neat thing about podcasting is is you can get obviously you can get the bipartisan stuff, you can get the biased stuff. If you're, you know, if you, you know, identify with a certain camp, then you can jump on those. But it's cool because there's a lot of people in this space that there's there's a lot of good quality information. And if you do a little bit of vetting and you understand who it is that's delivering the message or delivering the information, it's almost like going to school. I mean, I've learned so much through it, and, and hopefully, you know, through our episode and all the other ones, we can continue to deliver good information and content and, and open, you know, people's minds to different ideas and, and what's actually going on in the real world, you know. It's exciting. What So what, like, what specifically? Do you know anyone specific? Yeah, I mean, Joe Rogan, right? He brings on people for all over oh, the yeah. world from everywhere, right? Everybody I mean, He's number it, yeah. one. He's So you're yeah. that's who you're chasing. I'm, I'm guessing you're going to get there. Give it another six months. <laughs> oh, wow, that's ambitious, but hell yeah. <laughs> so... I just love the way that he comes in and he can talk to anybody about such different topics. Yeah. That they're never connected. Right. He finds a way to mesh them all together. He does. It all work. Yeah. It's neat because he he's so humble in the sense that like some of the stuff that people talk about, if it sounds simple, but he'll be like, Oh, what does that mean? And oh, what is you know, so what is that? And like he does like he goes in there knowing like I don't know everything, so tell me because I'm basically an idiot and I want to know more about it, which is cool. So so big Joe Rogan fan. Well, that's good. 
You're a baseball fan too, aren't you? Yeah, pretty big baseball fan. Yeah. So okay. that's from back in our youth. So my dad played baseball in college and so did my brother. Okay. And so he's actually named Brett after George Brett from the Kansas City Royals. <laughs> nice. That's what I say it is. I believe that to be true. So it's always been part of our lives and something that we have always just loved. So when it was taught to me, it was as much about the chess game that's going on between the pitcher and that batter. Right, every pitch means something. Everything you're structuring to do is is a setup for something else. How the defense is aligned, right? But then the physical execution, right? It's just you and the ball and the bat, and you have to go to work every day. So those two pieces just collided, and that's been kind of a metaphor for my life. How how you know you can plan, you can be prepared, you can do everything, but when it's time to shine, you still have to step up and go to work. So it's kind of it's kind of nice to have seen that from the times you were just playing t-ball and the ball was set up there for you, and then how it progressed to be harder and harder and more difficult. You can keep growing that skill set across that. So it's just a beautiful game to me. Right. Okay. So tell us, I mean, you started off playing t-ball and then what was, tell us your path in the baseball world. Yeah. So, I mean, playing t-ball and then I have, my brother's a year and a half older than me. So my parents got tired of uh, chasing two of us around to do different events. So I started playing (laughs) up and just, it helped me to realize that being small was never a question or an issue. And so we'd go around and I'd play up and I just keep getting steadily better and I tell people stories about my brother. My older brother's six four, good looking, smart as a whip. Like just a guy who I want to be. It must when I run grow in up. the family because if people don't know Brian, he's quite the stud sitting across well, from yeah. me. So he if may I not was be six, six four. four. Yeah, yeah, that would help. Yeah, that would help. <laughs> and so yeah, we were we just all always grew up playing together. And they were both pitchers, so I wasn't nearly as good of a pitcher. So I became a decent hitter. Cool. So I was all state third baseman all growing up, and actually had offers to play in college, but decided football was a better opportunity for me. Just with engineering, I knew. Like the NCAA says, everybody's going pro in something other than sports or 90% of us. <laughs> yeah. So I knew that was me. And so I knew I wanted that engineering degree and I knew that's something that I wanted to be a part of. And so realizing the baseball schedule of spring ball and fall ball and being traveling all the time didn't make it possible to really be in the classroom and get the studies. Whereas football, even though it's a grind, being gone one day a week is a lot easier to manage than all the travel associated with baseball. So yeah. I took that risk instead and went through that period. Okay. So football, who, what position did you play in football? I was a strong safety at the University of Kansas. So nice. run around. I was not nearly fast enough or big enough to play at that level, but I may have been smart enough to make up for a little bit of that. So this was a, this huge dichotomy in my life of you go to the football world and you're the smallest and the slowest and the smartest. And then you go into the engineering world and I'm the biggest and the fastest and the dumbest. Yeah. And it's just this great thing that I'd have to flip a switch every time and yeah. change which personality I had to be because I fit into the worlds in such a different metrics in such a different way. Yeah, no, that's super interesting. And I, growing up, I played actually competitive baseball and played football as well, as well as basketball. And a lot of the character building, the discipline came from that sports background. So how would you say growing up in sports kind of shaped you for who you are and, and kind of set the stage from you know character and discipline and stuff do you think that played a big role in, in who you are today yeah my mom would hate it to know like every time my dad sent us outside to do something we'd always come back in and fights it was always a competition everything someone had to win but the real things about it that that grow with you are those discipline and really the teamwork right that's something when looking at people to be around and to be part of having that ability to be part of a team and to know how to work to contribute your piece and to know how to pick up someone when they're having a down day right or to know that even if you're having a down day, it's not the end of the world, is so huge across life. You know, we're going around and we're playing all this, but those disciplines and the camaraderie associated with being a team, knowing you have that brotherhood or sisterhood or whatever it is, 
to be a part of is something that really carries you well past sports. And then knowing that every day you get up and work, even if that's not a competition day, right? Even if today's not the day that I have to put the test on, today's not the meeting day, today's not when I'm going to close on the next big deal, I'm getting up and going to work. I'm learning what I need to learn. I'm preparing for what I need to do. That constant disciplined mentality will lead you to great things regardless. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. And one of the things that I like to touch on with regards to sports is, you know, it's they always say practice makes perfect, this and that. But you grow up and, and there's you play with kids who they always want to perform when people are watching. But then you get the kids that, you know, whether they're wired different or they just listen to their coaches and they're coachable, they do the little things when people aren't watching to which then that extra work, you know, it, it the byproduct is them is them performing and, and just being an elite athlete, an elite kid in, in general. And and that leads into our world. Like there's a lot of times you're sit, sitting behind a computer or you're on your notepad doing the little things with to do with your job that aren't sexy and don't necessarily create the most value but it's the little things that you do when people aren't watching and that you're not looking to get recognized for is ultimately what makes you that much better and gives you that competitive edge because you're prepared you know all the time and so again sports kind of helped me do that and you know the coach would be like oh when you go home I want you to practice this and it's like well the coach isn't watching so I'm not getting recognized there's not fans watching me and I'm doing this stupid foot drill in my backyard I'm like what is that going to do and and now looking back, it's like I probably could have done more of it. But now just knowing that I, I kind of try to apply that to my career. It's like, you know, read a little bit extra, you know, get a little extra sleep, like all the little things that that kind of, you know, add up really make a huge difference. So, I mean, is that something that you can identify with? Yeah. First of all, what I would tell anybody getting into any industry is what you don't realize is you always want to look good up, right? Everybody wants to look good in front of the boss or the boss's boss or mm -hmm. the boss's boss's boss, right? Yeah. And so we prepare for that moment and do everything. But what we don't realize is you're coming into a world and you're one of a hundred that just got hired into this corporation or one of 10, depending on how big it is. And your first immediate goal is because we're competitive, I want to beat all of them to the next spot. I want to get there first. I want to be the next one there. Mm -hmm, right. And so what we see is we do work so hard to be that, to be the first manager out of this pool of people and that we alienate everybody around us, right? We, we fight against them and we make them the com competition instead of the partners. And so they're going to be there across your career. The people high up, they have, may have a 10, 20 year impact on your career, but they're not going to be with you the whole time. So if you spend time making those into friends, making those into your teammates, sure, you may be the 10th one to come out of them. But every spot after that, you'll be one ahead because you're the only one who's working with a group of friends that the friends are pulling you because they know that they like working with you and being a part of that. So that's the biggest thing is those same things you're talking about, that little extra work, that little extra time you spend helping someone else do a presentation or find the answer to a solution or do whatever it is. Those little pieces of time make a big impact on the early parts of their career. And they won't forget that is when they have a new opportunity, when they have a new chance. And so building people up around you and making them the best they can be will ultimately make you better just by influence. And so by doing that and spending the time doing that, Will take you to great places right and that's a great mindset and, and a growth mindset i love it man that that's super cool and that's a huge nugget that uh, hopefully everyone listening can take away from so before we keep going again so talking about baseball have you jumped on the astros bandwagon or what yeah so fortunately i was there was it 2016 when the it was game four and the Royals had to win to continue the series, <laughs> yeah. right? And so I was the the only one standing and cheering after a couple of blunders by Correa. And the Royals <laughs> got a chance to come back, and they ended up winning the World Series that year, which was huge. 
But then from that point on, right, those young guys have have taken their lumps and they've learned from it. So then I was fortunately also there in game five against the Dodgers whenever they were just hitting home runs every other thing. So it was highs and lows, and the crowd was just like on the edge of their seat, didn't know what to do. You know, it was at a 12-inning game. And after that, how could you not be a fan of a team that plays like this, that plays this hard and just has this much fun? So as long as the Royals aren't in town and they just were, so that passed for this season – I'm easily an Astros fan. Right, right. So, uh, yeah, they actually just had a series a couple weeks ago. And, and if I'm not mistaken, Houston won two out of the three, right? They did, yeah. Okay. Kansas City gave Houston their lumps on Tuesday, but the other two, they took a beating pretty well. <laughs> yeah, so, there was yeah. some serious run scoring in that series. Yeah, it just was never equal, though. It was no, just back and forth. It so. was like a like a seesaw. Any comments on the standings with the Royals? Like, aren't they last in their division right now? Pretty close to last in the world, I think. Uh, they may, <laughs> if they get did relegation, they would be thinking about it right now. But no, they'll get it back. <laughs> they have some good young hitters. It's just so hard in the small market baseball. The Astros know that that you have to go through the down period to be able to build up the farm system to have a team, and so that's what they're going back through now. So when you make it up to the peak and you and you win one as that team, it's hard to go that far back down. But it's better for them than being mediocre for another 30 years and maybe making it to the first round of playoffs, but nothing more. Right, right. That makes sense. Before we get going, I want to take a quick break. If you'd like to support the show, please subscribe and do me a huge favor and take a few minutes to leave a review on whatever platform you're listening to. Any feedback is welcome and appreciated, good or bad. If you ever, you know, if you have a great story or an idea for a show, or simply if you have any questions, hit me up on LinkedIn. I'm pretty active on there. So I've had several people reach out to me on LinkedIn and just either thank me for the show or say, oh, I like, you know, whoever it was you had on there. They had some great information that I was able to take away from. I actually had a lady, her name's Mia, if you're listening, she just graduated, I think from LSU and she's a chemical engineer. I forget who she's working for, but she hit me up and she just said, look, I love the platform. I love the the podcast and I, I'm, you know, kind of pigeonholed in my area, but allowing me to hear people's stories and, and information from all walks of the oil field has really helped me in my career and kind of helped me understand and tie up a lot of the loose ends that otherwise I was curious about. Stuff like that goes a long ways. And yeah, it just, it makes me smile and warms my heart hearing people listening like that. Cause yeah, I would have never met you otherwise. So thanks me. I appreciate you reaching out on LinkedIn. So Brian, tell us a little bit, and you already kind of did, but what was Brian's life like before getting into the oil field? I know you played baseball, you went to college. Was there anything else in there that took up a lot of your time? Yeah, I mean, so I guess all the way back growing up, my parents and grandparents were farmers and teachers, and so that work ethic still flows through me, right? To know that you get up and go to work every day. My, My grandpa told me two things, right? Work hard, be nice, right? It's very easy, and if you're willing to dig a ditch, you'll always have a job. Hell so yeah. knowing that, that I can go in and get my hands dirty and put in the work, regardless of that's behind a computer or out in the field, that helps guide you in your ways that every day you're going to work, even if the work may be sitting down behind a computer compared to out there digging post holes. So a lot different. And then my mom taught math and my dad taught shop auto mechanics and welding and then was our coach as well growing up. So the merger of those two worlds was mechanical engineering. So that's the easiest way to get there, right? They said I was bred to do this or bred to be this, right? Understanding what, how to do it and then what's under the hood and how to actually put the components together is something that most people don't have both pieces of. To know how to solve differential equations and weld isn't a, a cross training that, that a lot of people get. So I was very fortunate to have both those experiences and to use that. And then is the one thing they hate about me is I've always wanted to know why. Yeah, I'm not just going to do something. I'm not just going to be there. I need the why. I need to know the why. And so that's what's really guided me across everything I've tried to do and wanted to learn. And so before the oil field, I didn't know what I wanted to be. 
probably still don't know really what I want to be when I grow up. <laughs> yeah. Still working on growing up one day, maybe. That a boy. But when I first went to college, I wanted to be a biomechanical engineer. Concussions were a real big problem and a real bad sports injury, and I wanted mm. to help solve that. So I worked in the spine lab at KU for a couple of years okay. and learned a lot about how they were doing stuff. We were designing a spine that could be tested on by doctors, right? Human spines, wow. we can't test on either. Human's alive, and one mistake isn't going to go very well for anyone. Or the human's dead, and we can't transmit electric pulses the same way to control everything, right? They can wire them up and try, but it's not near the same game. So we were designing spine out of composite materials, everything from the spongy inner bone to the hard outer bone to all the piezoelectrics that would control all the nerve endings so that doctors could test different practices or procedures based on what had happened and hopefully help with any of the disabilities that someone may incur from a different injury. Wow. So that was a very good experience. Lots of fun. So much learning, things I had no idea about. Yeah. But I realized that wasn't for me. Okay. So Why was that? It just, I don't know, kind of like the isolated nature, right? Being in the lab and doing stuff and never, never in that time seeing where it was going to go or how it was going to go and know what the long end game was for the test. Then the real value for me would have been to see the human that could walk again because of the solution for this. Yeah. And I wasn't going to be part of that growth curve. That wasn't something that I saw, as well as how fastly they were already moving on fixing concussions and the changing in helmets. I believe that that ship was going to sail before I had a chance to get fully into it. So I went and designed submersible pumps for a while. So I got to work with like the industry to, to design actually the pumps that are in the levee in New Orleans. So that oh. was a project I got to work a little bit on through Pentair, Fairbanks Morse Company. And so... That was a great experience. And then after that, I designed wind turbine blades. So it was a senior design project that I didn't like anything that was offered. Uh, <laughs> okay. and so we set out to try something new. And what we did was design wind turbine blades for third world communities to have power. So we were hearing these stories of kids who were studying by either firelight or candlelight and burning things that weren't healthy for them to be burning just so they could finish their studies or do whatever they needed to do. Wow. And so we went around and found old car parts or old trash cans, different things that we could design a wind turbine blade out of it to power a car battery so then they could plug it into their house as their power supply no and do it. And so we went through and designed all that. And it wasn't wildly successful, but we designed the whole system so that way they could they could have all the components to rebuild it and do it easily. And it wasn't definitely not even close to the most efficient operating wind turbine that you could have out there. Yeah. But it was something that they could have used and would have worked. Is that so, happening right now? No, we didn't no? continue that, right? As we were going on, it was just so much struggle and so much, you know, how do we get the information directly to them and how do we ensure that it's safe, that we're not going to have more damage than good come from this, right? If someone weren't to put the bolt in right or weren't to have the right size bolts and it would have failed and, and fell over and hurt someone, yeah. the risk versus the reward wasn't seen in that way. There's okay. other opportunities. But the philanthropic passions still yeah. flow through for sure. Interesting. Huh. So then I designed large scale wind turbine blades for that a company that sponsored that for us and we designed what was the largest splinting turbine off the coast of China and Norway, ninety two meter long single blade. Wow. So, that is huge. Yeah. <laughs> it's just it's just hard to even fathom. Yeah. Is that the same size that you see like here in the US or in No, Texas? those would be around forty two meters or forty meters or so. They're a lot smaller, right? Because just how high you have to go of to course. get ninety two meters off the ground and that's your spin tip. So you don't want that touching the water or anything. So you're right. the power law is one seven. So every time you go up, it's exponentially to a seven of how much power you're getting from the wind, how far are you are away from the laminar flow of the surface. Huh. Even on our windy days, yeah. it's nothing compared to what you are that far up in the sky. So what, I mean, 
what are your thoughts on wind and like energy? Like, in, you don't have to go down like a huge rabbit hole, but like, is that something that you think could be sustainable and that adds, you know, value to our? So that foray into wind industry was exactly what kept me here in oil and gas or brought me here in oil and gas was that energy is something the world needs. That's not, again, when I was talking about the kids, we believed when solar and, and wind came on the market that they were our competition. They're not. The world needs more power. Your kids are going to have iPhones in no time, right? So they're going to need to be charged. They're going to need, may have an electric vehicle by then. They may have all kinds of things that need power. And it doesn't matter where the power is coming from. We need more of it because the world's going to be more connected and doing more things that are good for the human race. And so I'm not here to say that you should only get fossil fuels to power the world. Fossil fuels do so many things well beyond just producing power that we need as much as we can get and from wherever we can get it so that we have whatever it is, whether it's seemingly sustainable or not, because those aren't sustainable either. We only have so much surface area right. to work with, but we need all the ways we can get in to be efficient as getting as possible. So for me, they're non-competitive. They're, they enhance each other. So if you can use both, do it. Whichever one fits best your need, use that. Yeah. What a great perspective, man. I wish more people would have that, that sort of approach because you're right. It's We right away see it as a, as a competition. It's like, oh, it's going to take my job. And and you get people that swing so far. I mean, there are people that are trying to completely get rid of non-renewables. But ultimately, like you said, it's we need more of it, whatever one's more fit for purpose and cost effective. And I mean, the thing is, oil and gas companies are doing such a good job with putting in safety regulations, environmental regulations. Like, we're not here to damage the world. We're just trying to provide, you know, energy and, and different, you know, in chemistry and hydrocarbons to be able to build the very things we use every day so it's you know we're not all terrible beings no that's not all <laughs> and even your prius or your tesla uses so much fossil fuels to either mine the lithium to get that out to make the batteries or the petrochemicals to make the plastics that contains the batteries you're using so much of it and you need so much of it even if you believe you're bringing a cleaner world which you are yeah. that it won't eliminate the oil and gas industry by introducing that and a lot of people don't realize those other pieces of technology how much oil and gas world they use yeah so they think that they've stepped far out of it when they realize that we're still fueling their lives and the lifestyle that they're choosing right i would love to have an episode just focused on on providing information on how oil and gas actually promotes people who are anti-oil and gas <laughs> you know what i mean so it'd be a pretty interesting episode so did you enter college hoping to get in the oil field? And you kind of answered that by no, but when did, when, at what point did you know, like, hey, oil field, that's the route I'm taking, I'm going in? Yeah, I guess it wasn't. I mean, I was finishing up my master's degree, so six years deep through college. My eight-year-old self wouldn't be happy to know that I spent six years getting more studies than I had to do. And not that I'm not someone who likes to read and like to learn, but it wasn't someone who wanted to be cooped up and contained somewhere. And so... Realizing that there was still opportunities in the energy world that I didn't understand or see yet, and then hearing that there was someone's job who dug holes and played in the mud all day, sounded like that was the right fit, right? If all this schooling <laughs> yeah. could come out to being that, that's what I was going to do. So interviewed with several companies, and Oxy really had what seemed to me the best people to come and work for. So that's what got me started at Oxidal Petroleum, that opportunity to dig holes and play in the mud and keep using my engineering passions and, and to try something new and stay in the energy world. Cool. Cool. So describe your experience at Oxy. I mean, now you work at a small startup. You basically, there's a handful of people, more so from a culture standpoint. How did it go? And, and what did you learn from working at a corporation like that and to, and to how it applies to what you do now? And so that was a huge career jumps while I was there. Things I never knew, right? I was 
first started working in the field, which I absolutely loved, right? The old farmer background to be out there with the guys, even if I was the one with the diploma, to be able to get your hands dirty and work with those guys was phenomenal. The best way to start a career that I could ever imagine for any young engineer, I would say get close to the wellhead. Try to get out there in the field and to meet that. I know you may not like travel. You may not like the schedule, but do it. It'll mean so much across your career Mm -hmm. to get that strong understanding of what's going on out there that that's the best way that you can be the best engineer possible to impact the industry. And so that's where it all started. And then after eight months out there working in the field, they brought me into the office to handle my own my own rigs and learned a lot from that. And the biggest thing was that master's degree in computational mechanics, understanding that I was already behind. There's other kids who had four internships in the oil and gas world, maybe all in drilling. And they knew so much more. I didn't know what a drilling rig was when I first got out there. Right? I was looking up at it like, what is that thing? Is that a big cell tower? Is that like a mobile cell tower? <laughs> like, no, that's the drilling rig. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> and so knowing I was that far behind, I needed a way to catch up. I wanted to compete. I wanted to be there and drill the best wells, drill the fastest wells to help as best I could. And so I started being able to pull data and uh, manage it more quickly and to move stuff. So that's when this whole tech industry idea really started, was ah. to be able to see all of the rigs drilling instead of just the one I was sitting on and know what they were doing differently and how they were doing things different. And so that's where we started pulling the data in, and we were fortunate enough, had a phenomenal team, right? The biggest thing was the collaboration of the people, of the teams that I worked on. It was just phenomenal to have the Kevin Threadgills, the Austin Haggards, the Ryan Davis, you know, Molly was always out there crushing me every day. I'd come out <laughs> and she'd be drilling a faster well than me. Yeah. And so having those people to work around and to be with, you just we just grew together so fast on the challenges and what we saw. And so... After a while there, they, they moved me over to finance, and that was a brand new thing. You know, I lived with some accountants in college, so okay. I knew that they could be a little bit different, but mostly it was a new world with completely different acronyms and a completely different thing. But understanding what drives cost from the field brought a different perspective than the finance world had as well. So I was able to work up through that, work through portfolio management, did some investor relations stuff, and got a really broad picture on what it took to run a successful business. Interesting. And so Oxy gave me great opportunities. I had great mentors at every stop. That was one of my most fortunate things was to work for great bosses, different bosses, all all that brought a different perspective. So, and in, in this is one of the major questions I want to ask, and I didn't pre-treat you with this one, but like, how do you feel about the whole Anadarko Oxy Chevron ordeal? I oh, mean, man. it's uh, from a business perspective, because you, you kind of got involved with that world a little bit. So is Vicky just off her rocker or is she like on a mission and she knows what the heck she's doing and she's going to make it work? For my personal opinion, the price was too high. Not that Chevron's price wasn't too high, but for what Oxy wants to do with it, but the value's there. And so I think Vicky does have a mission and knows what she wants to do. She believes in the well results that Oxy's been producing across the Delaware Basin from New Mexico to Texas. Yep. And knowing that that acreage fits right in the middle of that and they're not getting near the same results, that there's more in the rock to unlock that the teams at Oxy can go and do. So I think she really sees that value and knows cool. that it's there and then realizes that, in my view, Oxy has a five-year problem, right? They they have great acreage and they have phenomenal acreage, but to keep drilling it at the pace they are, they're going to have that five-year problem. Where do we go next? What do we do next? With the high price in the Permian, do we go somewhere else U.S.-based? Do we go somewhere else outside the U.S.? What do we do? And so this really solves that five-year problem with high-quality acreage right in their backyard right and so they're going to divest some of the other pieces as they already have with total yeah to make that money back as fast as they can we'll see what they do with the offshore stuff the production is conventional offshore so it's no different than the eor business unit so it's a very valuable piece 
to Oxy's portfolio just in production numbers, but future like future fuel from there doesn't make sense as a part of their portfolio project, in my opinion, right? I'm, I'm not Vicky. I don't have to sit there and make <laughs> those decisions. I don't have to make the hard ones like that. Yeah. But in my perspective, in the next three years, the stock price will be underperforming. And after that, they'll, they'll hit the ground running and it'll really show that it made sense for the long haul of Oxy to okay. go out and get something like this. So you, you mentioned five-year problem, which hopefully this helps fix or at least gives them, you know, extends that period. Does this make it now a six-year problem or does it make it a potentially 12-year? I mean, how much more? Yeah. The the acreage they got, I, I think it pushes it out to 12-year. And then, but the biggest thing is by pushing it out to that 12-year problem, you have the chance to go ahead and see what's really next. Right. Is Buys the pay time, zone yeah. deeper? Because if the pay zone's deeper in the Permian, we find that the benches that we have is tier three, tier four benches down there are actually tier two. It's a 20-year problem. Right? right. So it buys you time to understand the rock you already own a lot better. And mm. so by pushing that limit out, it allows you to m- meld in the portfolio to test other benches and to see how it can be fully developed without the real big problem in the Permian is how do you move the product back and forth? We're getting bottlenecked by water, by the flow of gas or oil yeah. back and forth with the pipelines. And so the hard part isn't knowing the value of the pay in the Permian near as much as it, how can you effectively get it out without paying too much in infrastructure costs. Sure. And so by being able to balance where it's coming from, what you're going to do, I think they'll be able to answer that question well before they run out of tier one acreage at this point. Very cool. So do you think there's other operators in the Permian that are looking to do similar deals and make transactions like this? Or I mean, because this is probably not an isolated issue just for Oxy. I mean, I'm assuming there's other operators out there facing the same challenges, are they not? Yeah, when the downturn happened in 2014 through 2015, right, and it's still, we would consider ourselves in it, there wasn't near as much consolidation. We got that flood of venture capital coming to the industry, and so consolidation never happened. But in every downturn, that's what happens, is consolidation happens. And so right. I think we're now getting to the point that people are realizing what they need and what they need to do with that, and that we've bled through enough venture capital money that either you made your pay early or else the the payout may not be there near as much as what it was yeah. in the actual acreage. So now's the time for the big boys to come in and, and chew up what's left. Gotcha. Do you have any crystal ball uh, predictions as to who's going to buy who coming up? No, I don't have any. <laughs> Honestly, my real interest in, in the big boys is what's Shell going to do, yeah. right? So Chevron obviously wants in the Permian more than what they are. That's why they wanted Anadarko as well. And, and they didn't get it here, so they're going to try elsewhere. They don't need it, but they know how good it is, and they they want it. They want to be able to say they play in that scale and in that world. Exxon already bought Bobco and owns a lot of New Mexico, so their XTO business unit, I guess, is going to have a lot of work to do and already has the acreage. So they don't really need anything else, but if Shell lets them get any further ahead, they'll have their own problem on their hands, and they'll have to compete in a different way than having any onshore U.S. land stuff. Interesting. I mean, it's not a U.S.-based company, so they don't have near the concern of being here and having a presence here, but the pay is that good that they're going to probably want to be here more. And they have stuff. They have stuff scattered all around Anadarko. So we'll see if they ever decide to either get all the way in or get all the way out or what they're going to do to monetize that. Yeah, no, that's uh, interesting you say that. I haven't heard too many people talk about Shell, but nonetheless, we got an exciting year ahead of us. And I'm sure there's going to be some big money be thrown around. So let's jump ahead. Now you're at Astra Innovation. So give the listeners a little bit of idea of of what you guys do and how you add value to the marketplace. Yeah. So Astra Innovations is a small company that's delivering data-driven solutions to the oil and gas world through artful intelligence, right? The big AI that everybody wants is artificial intelligence. But right now we're at the point that 
All the knowledge is still in the minds of the people who've done this for 20 years or 10 years, and they have the understanding by just seeing or feeling mm. what the change is. So our biggest first driver is to bring that in an artful way. So to create some different visualizations that allow you to understand your fields and your work better, quicker, and more reliably so you can make decisions based off of that information as fast as possible. Okay. So that's step one for us, right? Our real why is our same driving why. How do I connect the people in the field to the boardroom's decisions? A lot of the times in the field, we move a rig here, or we, we stop drilling this well and we go drill that well and we don't know the why. We just do it, right? That's frustrating. Or in the boardroom, we don't know why one well is acting differently than the other. But in the field, the guy already knows. They realize that the pressures weren't there or that the dogleg severity made it impossible to do something that we would have done on a normal well. And we're not transferring that information to effectively make the boardroom decisions with the knowledge from the field-based guys. So we, we want to connect that and make it a collaborative thing that we're all chasing the same why. So we're going to set common goals, we're going to set common metrics, and we're going to look at them every day across the entire fleet and understand how how you need to work to make things different, to be better. We live in a world where we're on, all in a continuous improvement cycle, right? We all have to get better every time everybody wants to know what's next, what rig's coming next, right? What, what, what mud product's coming next? What are we going to do next? We always want to know that. And so if we can collectively decide that, then it works a lot easier. That's how we do it. So AI is taking the steps to do those things. The third-party companies don't have the time or the budget to go out and get a data science and data solutions team. So we're offering products that bring them up to speed to play and get the information that the big boys are requesting. They right. want it every day, and it's hard for us to go collect it and get it. So if we have that all centralized and we can centralize that workflows for people, then we'll do that and be able to answer the questions of tomorrow. Okay. So do you focus primarily on like upstream, downstream, or is it all encompassing? Yeah, it's all been upstream so far. So we haven't forayed into the downstream world. I don't have any experience there yet. Not saying that I won't, but sure. it's all in upstream and it starts with just the drilling process, right? That's when we're taking in the information. We did just make a partnership with a company called Supreme Source, which is a cool. geology company. And so they go through and maintain the center line of the formation ahead of the bit. So finally getting rid of the rear view mirrors and looking ahead mm. helps us understand a lot to increase the pay of everything we're doing. So yeah. no matter how fast you drill, and the drilling guys will hear me say this, no matter how fast you drill, it doesn't matter unless the pay is coming back out. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. I used to work with, he was just a reservoir engineer at the time, and now he's the director of New Mexico. And I was the first drilling engineer who asked him what the rate of return was on one of the wells. Like it's something we don't worry about because we have to drill the next well. Right. right. It's not our job to get the oil out. It's our job to put the hole in place. And so that isolated idea of our best way is to drill as fast as possible isn't true because it really depends on drilling the most productive and prolific wells possible. And so that's a whole team effort to put us in the right spot. Sure. So what type of challenges do you guys face in the marketplace with regards to actually keeping up with the rapid growth and evolution of technology and big data? Because, I mean, there's so many people trying to enter this space. So, I mean, what kind of challenges does that bring, and how do you stay in front of the market? And so, yeah, what I would say is, first of all, it's always about framing what you're trying to do and what your competition is. And so for us, the the people who I get insight from and work from aren't the big oil and gas companies. That's not who we're chasing, right? It's the Googles, it's the Amazons, the high frequency trading companies. That's where I get my insights that I can know what's coming down the pipeline to the computing world that will really change the industry. The second hardest challenge is you send your kids, right? When they get up to walk, they could crawl anywhere. They could do anything. But to run, you have to stand up. And to stand up, you're going to fall down several times. Mm. To take those first steps, you're going to fall down. So we build our company on the mindset that 
you have to make those minor changes that hurt at first. Mm. You have to constantly make those changes knowing that your goal is to run. Yeah. Even if you can crawl effectively right now, that's not going to get you where you want to go. So you're going to have to stand up and fall down a couple times and make those changes in ways that make a difference. And number three, the real challenge for us is that exact thought process with our partners. How do we make sure that we're not going to lose any of your data? How do we showcase you that we're going to move it forward and move everything and that changing the way you worked yesterday isn't going to get you where you want to go tomorrow? This whole deal with Oxy and Anadarko, if you can't integrate everything that they just did, if you can't bring both parties together and learn from what they learned and you have to start over at ground zero, yeah, that's not going to be an effective use of money or time. And so understanding the right way to bring them to the future or to bring everything they have forward as effectively as possible, but for sure to put in place the systems that make tomorrow as effective as possible is our biggest challenge. How do we convince the power players and the people who make those decisions that we're the company and we're the team that are right to bring them forward. Makes sense. So with, I mean, like you said, we're still somewhat you know, in the downturn. I kind of reference it to being in the, the hangover for the downturn. How do you sort of manage yourself in such a still a volatile market? And, and even more, are people willing to spend the money on this type of stuff? And I, I mean, are, are people, I guess operators that are really trying to get the competitive edge are pushing and spending money in this world. But do you find it hard to sell the idea or is it people are like, yeah, we like it, but right now we're still, you know, pinching pennies and cause we don't know what's happening tomorrow kind of thing. Like what does that world look like right now? Yeah, we see some of both for sure. And that's, I like that. It's been one of those two day hangovers, the ones that you can't seem to shake that you feel bad for the whole week. Uh, <laughs> right. That's what it's been like, but we've seen some of both, right? First is that the big boys are spending the money. They're hiring their data teams. They're, they're trying to do everything they can to bring the people on to, to make this push. And that's driven by the market. The market is requiring that all of these companies become tech-related, right? They like the growth and the tech boom that happened, and they see that oil and gas is lagging. So they're the ones pushing that, whereas some of the smaller players aren't forced to spend that money and to do that. And so we, we definitely hear that, yeah, that's great, but it doesn't make sense for us to do it. And so for our vision of that is if you don't start today for the small thing, it's only going to get more costly. You're only collecting more bad data. Mm -hmm. You're only learning on the wrong systems and wrong solutions. So if you don't start this journey now, you're going to be so far behind that the costs are going to be astronomical. That it's not going to make sense. And the problem is your competitors will. Yeah. They will have that knowledge. They will have that ability to deliver solutions so quickly that if you don't start now, that you're going to be behind. So we'll work on what it takes and what you want to transfer and how what this transition looks like. But it's not... It's not a function of cost today, right? It's the same thing that you invest in a marketing budget or hiring your next set of interns. If you don't start this today, those kids coming in, they're working on these systems. They know how to do this already. If you don't get them this, then you hired an employee that's not effective. You're only going to get 0.6 out of them. You're not right. going to get the whole one. So if you don't give these new hires, these great, intelligent kids, the chance to really run, then they're not going to be effective. So why hire them? So if you're hiring new people and bringing in new kids, then you should be bringing in these systems and doing stuff like this. Yeah. So if you believe in the future of your company for real, then that's where the money comes from. The future hires bucket, the training bucket that you're spending on them, not from just your normal expenses that you're looking at the bottom line of a single well cost.
Yeah, no, that's so true. And it, and it takes a different mindset. And there's that huge age gap right now, obviously, with the big crew change that happened, you know, not too long ago with, you know, you get the senior level executives that, like you said, they've seen it, they've touched it, they can make decisions just by almost instinct. Whereas the kids coming in now, it's like, you know, show me the data, you know, where's the data? How, how does it look? How is, you know, I'm going to make quick decisions, but I need you know, data to support my decisions. And a lot of times they don't necessarily can't analyze it as well as their superiors. But yeah, you have to let these guys come in or girls come in who are willing to take the the leaps of faith and, and, you know, apply different software and different mechanisms. And, you know, because there's a lot of people coming into the space that the value is there and it's just, you have to have people willing to, to actually spend the money on it and, and take the time to figure it out. Like I have a customer that, you know, one of the drilling engineers was slightly complaining, like, yeah, our boss just basically sent us an email, said, hey, we have this company named XYZ, figure out how to use them and figure, and tell me how they add value to our program and are they going to help us drill wells faster? And they're like, we have no idea what, like, what, what do we do with this tool? You know what I mean? And so it's like, but you're going to have to do it. And, you know, it's, it's interesting. It fascinates me just to kind of hear the way, you know, operators are like, yeah, I'm sure we can use it somehow, but figure it out and let me know how it works. So it's like, yeah, you better jump on the wagon or get rolled over at right. some point. Yeah, and that's hard seeing the future right before it exists today. Yeah. Do your customers ask for more? Do they want more information and they want oh, it faster? Every day. Right. That's the biggest challenge is that these engineers, us engineers, right? I'm one of them. I'm not immune to this. Wants more and want it as our fingertips and they expect someone else to go get it for us. And so... You don't have the time in your day to do that with the rest of your things. We can't just make more hours. I haven't figured out how to do that one yet. That's the <laughs> yeah. next journey. Yeah. Uh, but that that's something that making it easier to get that information, having it at your fingertips so you, we can share it and we can talk about it is very valuable. You're absolutely right. Well, we're getting close to the end of the session here, but I do have two last questions. One's a little more on the personal side, but just briefly, what does the future of big data and AI look like for oil and gas? Any thoughts or feelings on it? One of my biggest things that I'm introducing that I believe the world needs to see is non-competitive data. Hmm. That's just a term that we need to learn more about and to understand better is that right now it's hoarding, right? Everybody yeah. wants it. That's mine. Don't touch it. You can't have it. You can't use it. Yeah. But from your perspective, you're not too worried about who the directional company is or what motor's out there. You're not too worried about what bit's out there. You're worried about drilling faster. So understanding the system and connecting what you're seeing from your mud, how it's impacting how fast we're drilling, those need to be connected. That's non-competitive data. That's stuff we need to work together and learn on and connect yeah. in ways that we can all work together to do the same job. Our goals are all the same. We're not fighting against those people who are helping us do the same thing. So when we drive down and that's what we're trying to do, we should share, we should talk, we should be together. And the biggest thing was when I, when I first jumped was seeing how a big company and directional company work together. It's someone's fault. It's yeah. always your fault first. First of all, everybody knows that. The mud's the first blank. <laughs> of course, uh, yeah. After no, I'm that, used to that. Yeah, after that, either the bit failed or the motor failed, and it's one of the faults, and you have to find out whose fault it is. Sure. Instead, we should work together and find a solution instead of just find out who's the right person to blame. And so I think that that sharing of data in the right ways of non-competitive things that isn't a trade secret or isn't going to make or break the industry to learn from is the biggest change that's going to come through this whole system. Right. No, and you're even seeing it now. I mean, when I first started off in the sort of account managerial type role and back in 2012, 13, you know, I would have two customers drilling in the same area and they would know that and they'd say, don't share any of your information with so-and-so. And 
I always kind of found it odd because coming from Canada, you can you can pull up any offset information, regardless if you drilled it or not. You can go to the Oil and Gas Commission, pull up, you know, the IEDC reports. So, you know, they're, they're always willing to share data. Now, of course, there's proprietary stuff that you can't. But coming down here, it was like everyone was so extremely protective. It was like, you know, we drilled it, so this is ours. We don't want everyone, anyone to share it because... You know, if they do, then they might drill better wells than us. And but even that's shifted. I mean, internally with different operators, it's like, hey, work. Here's the you know directional company, meet mud company, work together to solve this problem. And now we're not even dealing with a customer. It's like, hey, let's work together to figure out solutions. And hey, will you share this with us? Yes. Will you share this with us? Yes. And ultimately, it helps the whole industry as a whole. You just completely to you know continue to innovate and and get better. So uh, yeah, the, I've even seen the mindset shift in that realm, which is which is good. We all need to work together, and as long as you're not providing proprietary information that kind of you know gives your company you know added you know specific value, then yeah, it's like come on, like you know we're all just trying to reach the same goal and let's help each other out. And if you're you know as good as you say you are, then you're not going to worry about people knowing what you're doing because ultimately it comes down to people and execution. And if you don't have my team and my people out there doing the job, then you may not do it as good as me, but here's the data, you know, go play with it. My real belief is that if you're really that good at what you do, what you're doing quickly becomes what you did. So yeah. you're not worried about showing hand. We'll let them chase our yesterday. They can come after it because it's not my tomorrow, right? By the time you get there, you're going to have to do it again. Yeah. And you're constantly going to be behind. Dude, I so love it. So that exactly. is the easiest way to think about it. If you're really that good, I don't have to keep it from you. <laughs> yeah. The biggest thing is that I'm not smarter than people, right? I may be connected to the right people and know the smart people, but connecting those things and creating that mesh in how to use information, how to do it, is well more valuable than just having it. Two minds are always going to be greater than one. Yep. So sharing it and when it comes back to you, it's going to come back as a better idea and more complete. You're absolutely right. So one last question here. Do you have any daily habits or routines that help create a recipe for success in both your personal life and your career? First thing, the day before, I always have tomorrow's plan or next week's plan or next month's plan. I, I, have, I plan ahead, right? And I yep. put prioritize it to do the hard things first, right? Tackling the hard things at the start of the day makes the rest of the day a lot more fun. Right? Mm. It's a lot easier to get to happy hour when the hard stuff's already done for the day. <laughs> Hell yeah. uh, so the one is planning ahead. I was planning out your day tomorrow before. And the second is to read. Read something. Learn something. Talk to someone who knows something more than you do. Listen to a podcast. Find some information that you may not touch or be connected to in any other way and go and do that and learn that. And you may think, okay, well, I didn't really pick up anything for that. You do that for a week, a month, a year, two years, 10 years. And you learned a lot and you realized a lot of things and connect a lot of things that you didn't know before. So those would be the two things that, that daily I do that makes a difference. Good for you. Well, it's obviously working, man. You've catapulted yourself, you know, into a great space and you're doing extremely well. And I'm, I'm excited to see, you know, the continued journey of Brian Blackwell. So, but now it's time for our podcast giveaway. Tendek is our sponsor and they're known for their advanced completions and technology and they are giving away a mini portable projector perfect for home theater, boardroom, office, and pocket video. For a chance to win, click the link in the show notes and we'll announce the lucky winners as they come in. Let's talk a little bit about events. I'd like to take a moment for Julie to tell us about our upcoming events. Hey everyone, it's Julie here with the events on deck for May 2019. We have our Midland Happy Hour on May 21st at Midland Beer Garden and it will be from 6 to 9 and then we have our Houston happy hour and it's going to be at the Cannon from 6 to 9 on May 28th. This month we have the Oil and Gas Smart Contracts Conference on May 15th and 16th and we will actually be 
launching another one of our new podcasts live from that event. So check it out. The link is in the show notes. We have the Merge Market Energy Forum on May 21st. At, it's in Houston. Just check that out in the show notes. And then we have a charity event, Golf for Good. That's a golf charity event for Redeemed Ministries. That's going to be on June 11th, 2019. And they are still looking for sponsors. So check that out in our show notes. And if you want to sponsor or register, just click the link in the show notes. And that is it for the month of May. Some events on deck in the the coming months. We have Shoot for the Future, a clay shoot on Friday, July 26th. And then NAPES and the, the NAPES Summer is coming up in August. And that is it for our upcoming events. Thanks, Julie. I also want to mention the OKC Fin Feather and Fur. That'll be happening Friday, October 11th, 2019 at the Heritage Place, Oklahoma City. I mean, this is relatively new for the Oklahoma region, which is why I'm mentioning it so far in advance. So uh, show them some love and go onto the AAD website or uh, hit up Courtney Strang, which is a good friend of mine with Inwell for more details. Anyone else out there looking to join some oil field hockey? Come join the Hack and Whack crew for some old-timer hockey. We do it every three weeks at Memorial City Mall Ice Rink. Hit me up on LinkedIn for more details. I had a guy recently hit me up on LinkedIn. He said, yeah, I heard you guys are playing hockey and heard it on the podcast. I'd love to play. And yeah, I come played goalie last time. He did a great job. So appreciate you coming out, man. That was great. And if you're looking to get in shape for summer, visit KTX Fit in Katy, Texas and get a free trial by telling one of the coaches that I sent you. Anyways, Brian, thanks for coming on to the show. If someone's looking to reach out to you, get more information about either yourself or obviously Astro Innovations and all the cool stuff you guys are doing, what's the best way to reach out? Yeah, either email me at, at bblackwell at astra-ai.com or check out our website at astra-ai.com. Perfect. And we'll put the links in the show notes. That way people can reach out and... Yeah, if you're looking for more information on oil and gas onshore, visit www.oilandgasonshore.com. And that's a wrap, folks. So always remember, when the density's up and the gas is down, open the choke. Let's go to town. Ooh-wee. Tune in next week for another captivating episode of Tendeka's Oil and Gas Onshore Podcast, a production of the Oil and Gas Global Network. Learn more at oilandgasglobalnetwork.com. 